Are you looking for your next podcast binge to lose yourself in? Let me introduce you to a story that begins with sweet romance but quickly turns into betrayal and the far-reaching consequences of one man's deceit. It's an account told by the women whose lives were forever changed by it. You probably think the stories about you is a podcast hosted by Brittany Art. And it's not just another podcast. It's an exploration of self-discovery, growth, resilience, and healing. And it's all told in a unique format. And this is why I'm so excited about this one. This is Brittany's story, but she doesn't just host it like a podcast in the traditional sense. Through immersive soundscapes and the voices of the women affected by these events, this podcast creates such a unique experience experience that's going to make your headphones glow in the dark. I can't wait to get started and I hope you'll join me. Listen and follow. You'll probably think the stories about you wherever you listen to podcasts. It's important to recognize that this is a family disease, that um, that families are incredibly impacted and we, we so often ignore the effect and the problems and the difficulties uh, that families experience. Recognizing that it's going to be a process for the person to understand and find a way out of that. And you can help them to do that by providing the education and the opportunities for treatment engagement, but by also helping them along the way. That was Thomas Harrison and Dr. Hilary Connery on Psychologists Off the Clock. what psychologists chat about over coffee? We are three clinical psychologists who love to discuss the best ideas from psychology. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. In this podcast, we explore the psychological principles that we use in our clinical work. And we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Hi, folks. Diana here. I want to tell you about a couple of workshops that are coming up that we're involved in. One is at Yoga Soup on September 8th, which is a Sunday in Santa Barbara. Come on out for a workshop from 2.30 to 5, all on committed action. So if you want to make a change in your life and you want to learn how to use some of these ACT skills in a really practical way, please join me there. And then the second one Debbie is going to be at, which is going to be um, up at the Goodland Organics Coffee Farm in Goleta. And we're going to be doing uh, a workshop, some psychology workshops there in combination with Kristen Rusky who, and I who have, who have designed this full day retreat that's going to be amazing with sound healing and lunch and coffee and mindful walking check it out on my website, drdianahill.com, D-R-D-I-A-N-A-H-I-L-L.com. And we hope to see you there. Everyone has been affected by addiction on some level, whether it's them personally or a friend or somebody they love. And that's one of the reasons why Yael asked the two authors that came on today to talk about their experience with addiction and specifically their book called The Complete Family Guide to Addiction. It's so hard, I think, when you care about a person who is addicted to a substance 
you watch the person go through so much suffering. You can watch their lives sometimes unravel in extreme cases, and you never know what to do. I think most of the time we want to help the person, but we wonder, you know, should I take care of them? Is that enabling? Should I do tough love? But then they pull away. And I think you're just left feeling guilty and confused pretty much no matter what you do. And I think this episode really speaks to the complexity of it and helps people navigate some of these very difficult waters. So Yael has two people on which really complement each other because they come at addiction in different ways. Tom Harrison is a legal editor and publisher, and he was impacted personally because a friend of his had a substance disorder, and he really felt like there was all this complex information out there, but he because of his background, he was able to translate it into more of just a vernacular that we can all understand, and that's really his skill set. So it comes from the heart for him, but then also he has the skill of making it really relatable. Yes, and Dr. Hillary Connery, on the other hand, is really in the front lines of addictions research and clinical practice. She's the clinical director of the Substance Use Disorders Clinic at McLean Hospital, an assistant professor at Harvard. And she's involved in creating the guidelines for practitioners to use with when they're working with addiction. And she's working on the APA, the American Psychiatric Association practice guidelines related to addiction. So really a top researcher in this area. It's a great book and a great interview. And I really hope that it's helpful to our listeners. Welcome to you both, Thomas Harrison and Dr. Hillary Connery. Thank you. So your joint effort produced a awesome book that offers a a very comprehensive description of substance use disorders, evidence-based treatments, and guidance for what family and friends can do and what they should not do in response to the disorder of a loved one. As you guys write, and I'm quoting here, this book will not tell you what road to take. Rather, it will give you a complete roadmap of the landscape so that you'll be empowered to decide for yourself which is the best route for you and your loved ones. So I love this book because, um, as I was just describing to you guys, I have a background in doing research in the addictions and with a particular interest in how we can involve family members, both in terms of getting, uh, helping the individual recover and also increasing aftercare engagement. What I want to do is is talk a little bit about what the content of what your book um, reviews and then also get into some of the practical things that family members can do and, and knowledge about what's helpful and what's not helpful. But to start off with, um, it might be helpful for us to define what addiction is and also what it isn't. So I wonder, um, Hillary, if you can start us off by helping us understand how we define addiction. Sure. I think uh, one of the easiest ways to understand addiction, because it is complex and it can be confusing to people, but a simple way to think about it is to learn that addiction can be remembered by the three C's, control, craving, and consequences. And so an example would be um, addiction involves loss of control over how you use a substance. And that can mean you're using more frequently, than you intend to be, you're um, using more of it than you intended to use uh, per episode. So some loss of control, once you start using, you're having trouble um, uh, monitoring that use. Craving is a very core feature. Once somebody is substance dependent, 
Um, and in the absence of being able to use the substance, they will experience either thoughts anticipating the use of it or at what feels almost like a physical urge to want to use the substance. So that's the craving part. And then consequences are all the negative things that can be associated with um, damaging problematic substance use. So that can be impairments in relationships, impairments in work and role responsibilities, um, health consequences, things like that. I think one thing I would add is uh, what addiction is not. Um, addiction is not a sign that you're a failure or a loser. It's not a lack of willpower. It's not a sign of a bad moral character. And it's not a choice. No one chooses to be addicted. It is a brain disorder. It's something that goes wrong with the brain. Um, and I think we often miss, people often misperceive addiction uh, in that way. Um, as for what happens in the brain, um, addiction initially attacks the, uh, what we call the pleasure center, which is roughly the nucleus accumbens within the brain. And, and there, uh, dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter, is released and it gives us a sensation of pleasure. And evolutionarily, this is associated with things that preserve the species, uh, food, work, sex, accomplishment, um, all those sorts of things. Uh, when you take a substance, it generates uh, an artificial supply of dopamine. And this um, dysregulates the way that, uh, that the dopamine is working in the brain, in people who are susceptible to addiction. Um, and if you take a lot of it, over time, the brain will try to regulate itself. It will reduce um, dopamine receptors. It will stop making as much dopamine in response to normal stimuli. Uh, and so soon you develop a tolerance. You, you need to take more to get the same result. You're not getting pleasure from other things. And after a while, you reach a point where you're not really getting any pleasure at all, but you have this tremendous craving, as Hillary mentioned, this craving uh, for the substance to try to try to relieve that. And then affects other parts of the brain as well, parts of the brain that, uh, that focus on what, um, what's important to you, what, what you need uh, to focus on, and it becomes constricted to finding a drug. It, it affects the prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that is the decision-making faculty, uh, the breaking faculty, uh, and it uh, creates a kind of artificial sense that finding drugs is more important than work or uh, relationships and so on. So that's kind of sort of what Hillary talked about, um, but it's all, it's all happening in the brain and that's a brain disorder. It's nicely put. And also one thing that I think is really difficult to understand until you know this is that when the neurochemistry becomes dysregulated, um, a lot of times what's happening in the brain in, in its sensitivity and response to things that um, tell it that substance use is nearby um, or possible to plan, the processes that come up, come up automatically and are often not within a person's awareness. So for instance, a person may be um, going past an area where they used to use, and they're not actually thinking about using or planning to use, um, they happen to just be traveling there. Um, their brain will be aware that they are close in proximity to a place that they associate in memory with using. Even if the person is thinking about their to-do task list of the day, the brain is still active and actually knows this information. And because it's 
driven motivationally to seek substance use again, it will start to drive the thought process and the behavior in a way that the person seems experiences as just this is a uh, routine or normal way of thinking that I have this thought I need to take a right turn because of something else. And it's this, this process of rationalizing, getting closer to possibility of using a substance that goes on at a level that people are not aware of. And it's driving behavior. And by the time they become aware of it, they're so close to relapse that it's likely going to happen. So that's the piece that's difficult for people to understand because these processes are not within their control at all times. They're often automatic processes. Yeah, and so let's talk about, in a more explicit way, sort of how misunderstanding that how addiction affects the brain can impact how family members or other loved ones experience um, an, an addict's behavior, right? Because if you sort of think that it's under complete volitional control versus if you can understand that some of these processes are happening totally outside of conscious awareness and are driving behaviors that the addict may not really want to participate in at, at a conscious level, but that they're sort of um, outside of their conscious being sort of driven a little bit closer to it and increasing their risk for, um, you know, the the way that you would experience that is totally different. So, Hillary, I'm curious, um, in the clinical setting, you know, what do you see when people misunderstand the brain effects of addiction? I think what confuses families the most is that um, people with substance use disorders are often expert planners because because of the illness, they're highly motivated to plan their next use. And, be, and they become very, very expert at being able to do this in ways in which they're also hiding their use from others. Um, and so you have this contradiction between somebody who has is so resourceful in planning substance use and yet, um, you know, uh, is powerless at the same time to, to interrupt the cycle of addiction. And I think that's a, that's a contradiction that people um, really get hung up on because they say, well, you know, if you can go to all of these lengths to use your substances, if you can, you know, think about this in that way, then you should be able to stop. And it looks like willful behavior, but it isn't always. Yeah, and Tom, I, I've heard you talk previously about some of the ways that a family or family member or other loved one might respond if they interpret the behavior as being willful and, and how those responses might be unhelpful. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that. I mean, what happens if you see the behavior in, in a way that isn't quite accurate, that sort of misconstrues it as being willful and under total volitional control, and in what ways are those responses not, not terribly helpful? Well, addiction is such a weird disease. How can it be that, that, that you can't control your behavior and you can't control your behavior in regard to one decision? It just doesn't seem like a disease. Um, and so uh, family members often interpret it as willful, but we all have ways that we go about trying to persuade our family members to do the right thing or to do what we want. We have a good long talk with them, we reason with them, we bargain, we argue, we shame them, we beg, we plead. These are all things we do with our family to try to get them to do what we want. And because all of this is going on in the addict's brain, it doesn't work. 
none of this works. It's all useless. And it all, um, generally, it all uh, alienates the person. Um, and so it's... It works to make them feel lousy about the problem without really feeling like they have a solution to being able to stop. Yes. Yeah. So they feel worse. And that often becomes an excuse to use more. Right. And so uh, these behaviors aren't these things we do to try to try to persuade the person, if anything, tend to be counterproductive. Um, and so the way to find productive things to do uh, starts with understanding that it's a disease and what's happening in the brain. And that's why uh, in our book, we start with what's going on in the brain, because that help that if you understand that, it will help you to understand what you can do. Yeah, yeah. One of the, I, as I was reading your book, I actually was thinking a lot about um, the memoir, uh, Beautiful Boy by David Sheff. I don't know if either of you have read it. It, it then was made into a movie with um, oh. Steve Carell, I think. Yeah. Um, but it's the story about a father whose son becomes addicted to methamphetamines and how he, he tries every way, right? You know, bribery and loving him hard and setting up consequences and trying to convince him and, you know, reasoning and arguing and nagging and nothing, nothing works. And it, it sort of gets worse and worse and worse and he has periods of remission only to relapse. And it's sort of this very um, poignant story of, of the lengths that we go to try to help somebody change their behavior. Um, but what I think is so helpful about your book is it, it, you really classify like there are, there are certain kinds of behavior that we might be propelled to engage in and you talk about enabling behaviors and codependency and, and why those uh, kinds of behaviors are ultimately not terribly helpful. So let's talk first a little bit about what enabling can look can, like. Before we get to that, can I just make one comment? Because I think it's important um, for people listening to understand that addiction is really a spectrum of illness. And so um, that book really describes one of the most severe substance dependence syndromes. Methamphetamine is just horrible poison, and it's uh, highly addictive beyond other drugs even, and really one of the hardest ones for us to treat, in part because we don't have good medications to treat it, but also because it's so highly addictive. Um, so that's an extreme example. And then there are also you know, milder versions where people are actually more responsive to some of the interventions that pa that families will naturally come up with, and I just think it's a good, it's an important point to make sure that people don't view addiction as all severe, because in fact a lot of the spectrum of addiction falls on the mild spectrum, and people can in fact get better on their own without treatment. Yeah, and you talk about that in your book, this sort of question of does does one even need treatment, and and the answer is not necessarily and and i think that your point is a really important one that there is such a wide variation in the severity that um and sort of it's also important to note that we call addictions anything uh, you know from caffeine to heroin right so there's a real range in the danger of substances used as well as the addictive quality as well as the severity of the you know dependence on the substance. So I think that's a really critical point. So I'm glad that you added that. Speaking of enabling, though, um, I, I think enabling is any behavior that makes it easier for an addict to be an addict. Um, and that could be 
bailing people out of a legal problem or a financial problem, calling in sick for them at work, dragging them into bed at night, picking up the slack for them around the house, anything that reduces the negative consequences of their addiction. And enabling is absolutely normal because if you're a family member, what do you do? You love your loved one and you want to help them and you want to protect them and you want to care for them. And so all families, when someone becomes addicted, start out enabling the person because they're trying to care for them. They're trying to protect them. Which, by the way, isn't different from the way families respond to other illnesses. Exactly. The problem is that with addiction, those enabling behaviors end up teaching the addict that there are no negative consequences to their behavior, that they can use and they can get away with it and nothing bad happens. And because they don't experience any negative consequences, there, there are no costs associated with the benefit. Uh, and so it propels them to keep using. Right. Or put a different way, it shifts some of the negative consequences to the people they love. Yes. <laughs> which exactly. is also infuriating <laughs> for the family members. Yes, exactly. Um, and it's, it's very hard to stop enabling because you feel like you're hurting someone you love. Um, even though, in fact, you're often doing the very thing that will help them the most. I often think about this as being analogous to parenting, right? So some of the parenting behaviors that we might engage in are to kind of support our kids and to save them when they mess up and to, you know, sort of clear the way for any um, challenges or, you know, painful experiences that they might have so that they can feel good, right? Because as parents, we want them not only to be safe, we want them to be happy, we want them to feel optimistic and confident. And yet some of those behaviors, which, you know, now fall under the umbrella of helicopter parenting or snowplow parenting or lawnmower parenting, we've, we've come to find our are counterproductive, right? Because what do they do? They prevent our children from experiencing the natural consequences and from learning and from growing and from figuring out what works and what doesn't. And I think in the same way, some of those enabling behaviors that we engage in with a, a loved one who has an addiction are motivated by the same rationale of like, I love this person. I don't want them to suffer. I don't want them to experience that you know, damaging or painful consequence. But exactly as you were saying, it can really uh, sort of operate in this uh, way that is exactly the opposite of what we intend, which is to promote the behavior that is, is problematic. Yes, it's the same thing, except in a far, far, far more extreme form in the case of addiction, because not enabling often results in not just somebody not making a sports team or something, but somebody having very serious serious consequences to their life. And that's very difficult to stand by and watch, but it's often necessary. Right. And families will face these conundrums of, you know, where do you draw the line between being protective appropriately, such as taking the keys from somebody who's under the influence so that they don't get hurt or hurt somebody else by driving under the influence versus being overprotective. Um, and, you know, that's a, that's really a common dilemma that families are faced with. Yeah, and one thing that I loved in your book is you actually outlined some of that. And, and Hillary, this kind of goes to your point of, you know, there's sort of a range of severity and sort of dangerous 
uh, addictions and also consequences, but you even go through the example of what do you do if you have a child with a serious addiction and part of what is enabling their addiction is providing housing for them, is providing for them, providing them with a place to stay and, and room and board and all those kinds of things. And where do you draw the line, right? If it's going to mean that they're homeless, I mean, is that helpful? Is that just contributing to the problem anyway? Or, or you know, what, what in that case is the more enabling behavior and what's the more appropriate behavior? And you offer some suggestions, and I wonder if you could kind of talk us through, I'll just first say, like, there's obviously no simple solution. Um, and you say that very clearly in the book, but you do offer kind of some ideas, some ways to think it through. I think that every situation is different and, you know, it's helpful to look at the particular situation and always safety should be at the top when there's a threat to safety, whether it's the person who's using substances or somebody else or everybody involved, you have to respond appropriately to safety issues. That's it. That's sort of a given that everybody needs to make some really tough choices about. Um, but when it's not quite reaching the threshold of safety and it's really more, um, how can I stand by and watch this person self-destruct who has otherwise so many capacities, so many you know, potential opportunities for a great life? Where do I draw the line? And, and that gets very complicated for people because um, it will depend on your own temperament. It will depend on um, circumstances in the house such as, you know, you raise the issue of it's a, if it's a child. Well, what about other children that are being impacted by it? And you have to be thinking about equally um, helping them and not having your focus being uh, single-mindedly on the so-called sick child um, to the detriment of being able to have normal parenting for, for the well children. Um, so it, it does get very complicated. And Tom, do you want to add? Sure. I mean, we, we say in the book, addiction is a family disease. And this is a perfect example of why, because it's gut wrenching to for a family to have to go through this kind of decision making. It's incredibly debilitating. It's, it's psychologically devastating often. Uh, and so this is this is how addiction doesn't just affect the person, it affects the whole family. Um, many families will face a question, should we say, if you don't go to treatment, you can't live here anymore. And that's an incredibly difficult situation because you feel like if you turn the person out, what is the danger there? You're endangering them. But then you have to also say, but if they continue to live here and continue to use, what is the danger of that? Um, and so it's, 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 there's no perfect answer, um, but it's important to recognize that this is a family disease that um, that families are incredibly impacted, and we we so often ignore the effect and the problems and the difficulties uh, that families experience. Absolutely, and one of the things that I really like um, in terms of how you lay it out is this sort of analysis of the costs and the benefits of different behaviors and also different consequences for the addict and also for for the family members, and you know knowing the height of the 
benefits that the addict experiences from using is sort of a, a starting point, right? And then understanding that if you limit the effect of the costs, it's going to be much easier for that person to continue using. And so part of the decision-making process, I think, if I'm understanding the way that you've articulated in your book, is, is really sort of considering like what what costs are you willing to sort of allow uh, to, to happen for the person who's using so that they can have a, a scale that, you know, has the benefits as they are, right? The addiction exists, but also, but to sort of uh, create some balance on the other side. Yes. And uh, a lot of the techniques that we talk about involve uh, allowing natural consequences, but some of them, such as craft, uh, involve uh, not just trying to create uh, negative consequences for using, but positive benefits for not using. Can you actually define what craft is? And, and it's a very complicated treatment, but um, if, can you give us a little bit of a background on that? Sure. Um, craft stands for Community Reinforcement and Family Training. And it's an evidence-based um, therapeutic approach for family members who have a loved one with a substance use disorder who is not yet really ready or motivated to seek treatment on their own. Um, and it's, um, it's in some sense, I mean, you, you call it complex, but it's actually quite simple in the philosophy that um, people are more responsive to positive reinforcement than anything else. And so if you, it, what it does is trains people to look for healthy behaviors um, that can be positively reinforced. So for instance, if, uh, if my husband were to come home drunk um, and sleep the afternoon away, but then show up at the dinner table, um, rather than uh, becoming angry about the lost afternoon, um, I would limit myself to really commenting in a happy way that he made it to the dinner table and it was nice to see him for dinner. Um, it's that kind of a philosophy that you're looking for, trying to really support all the good behaviors, all the, or I shouldn't say good, but all of the, you know, behaviors that are associated with good health, good relationships, and taking care of yourself and others. And um, recognizing that this is a process for the person to give up something that they're stuck in as an illness, and that in some ways, maybe, you know, supporting other um, issues that they have. Stress, for instance, is a common reason that people get into a cycle or pattern that's unhealthy with substance use. Recognizing that it's going to be a process for the person to understand and find a way out of that. And you can help them to do that by providing the education and the opportunities for treatment engagement, but by also helping them along the way by letting them know they're still loved and valued and um, in that way getting their attention toward the benefits of getting involved in treatment there i don't think there are many people out there who have a, a severe substance use disorder who a aren't aware of it and b at some level you know don't feel awful that it's so complicated and that it's uh, reduced lots of positive things in their life most people have that very strongly and that's the shame part of it um and yet they can't find their way to breaking the cycle without help and so 
that paradigm of using positive reinforcement is such an important one, and, and I think it's getting more and more attention in the field of psychology, because you know, through the research that's happening, you know, in general. Um, but applied to addictions, I think it's it's this it's really almost counterintuitive, and it's really hard to enact because a lot of the time, as you guys have described. We're really upset. We're really hurt. We're really traumatized. We're really confused. We're really stressed out by witnessing and being engaged in close relationships with somebody who has an addiction. And so, the idea of trying to, in um, in couples therapy and in parenting, sometimes we think about it as like catching the person being good and reinforcing it, and then ignoring the behavior that we don't like. It's really hard to do that. It's really hard to do that if we're suffering and we're, you know, anxious and overwhelmed. And so craft really provides a, a framework within which to try to practice those behaviors and build upon them. And and I think it's such um, an important idea, a difficult one to enact, but a really useful framework to adopt even when we're really struggling. Craft is highly counterintuitive and it's very artificial, and it's hard to learn to do, and it runs counter to uh, everything you would expect, but it runs counter to all the things you've done in the past that didn't work. Uh, and um, it requires acting contrary to your feelings. But I often use the example of if you, if you have a, an elderly relative with dementia, you don't interact with them the way you would interact with most people. You understand they have a brain disorder, and you adjust accordingly. And, and craft is the same, but for dealing with addiction. You recognize the person has a brain disorder and you change your form of interaction into a more constructive pattern. And while it's difficult and it's counterintuitive, all the evidence tends to show that people who practice it become happier, become more contented, become uh, more able to function regardless of whether their loved one gets better. And that also the probability that their loved one will seek and engage in treatment um, is elevated. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, it's sort of an interesting contrast to the more traditional intervention styles that I think were quite popular in like the 80s and 90s, where, where you would sort of gather a group together and sort of confront the person with the addiction and tell them all the reasons that their behavior was concerning or damaging. Um, and there is some suggestion that it works for some people, but there's also a lot of suggestion, I think, in the research that um, it can really cause the person with the addiction to be to sort of retract and to feel worse and more shameful and to get a little bit more entrenched or a lot more entrenched in the behavior. And so it, it's nice to sort of recognize that there's two different approaches that might work differentially for different people in different circumstances with different um, preferences, you know, both in terms of the addict as well as the family members. But I think craft just really provides a nice positive model that, as Tom, you were saying, it's it's so different than what most of us get into when we're really hurting in, in our relationships. I think in medicine in general, there are certain treatments that work, but you have to be a good candidate for them. Absolutely. And many people are not good candidates. And I feel that that's true of interventions. They can work, but they work in very specific circumstances and you have to be a good candidate. And if you're not, it can be counterproductive. That's true. And, and, and also how the intervention is carried out matters tremendously. So the interventions in which a lot of people are screaming at somebody, you know, and going through the laundry list of how they've 
trashed everybody's life and inconvenienced people or bankrupt the family, that is not helpful. Um, but, a, but a family intervention that's necessary, say for instance, because a young adult is, is just failing to launch at that critical time when they should be building a life and a career um, and they're just destroying their chance of it. Um, that at that moment of a family intervention that's carried out with firm love, with saying, we know you're sick and because of this, you know, we're, we've arranged for this to happen for you, we'll be there with you through it. That's a different tone to an intervention and one that's much more likely to work. Absolutely. One of the things about craft is that anyone can do it. And not only can anyone do it, but one family member can practice it, even if none of the other family members around the addict are on board or are in denial or, or whatever. So it can be, and a person can get a benefit yeah. from craft, even if no one else is doing it with them. Right. That's a really good point because often families are fractured over how to approach. There's always a person that wants to be more protective and then there's the person that wants to punish. And um, so it's, it's helpful to people who are trying to find their way. And that's another reason it's a family disease. It fractures families so yes. often. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love the suggestion that, you know, there, there's lots of different ways that you can go about it. There's there's the sort of like firm love and setting some boundaries. And then there's this idea that is more uh, consistent with craft, which is to just engage in positive communication and try to reinforce whatever um, behavior that you can identify that you'd like to see more of and just sort of not pay much attention to the behavior that you'd like to see less of. I wonder if you guys can walk us through some other ideas for how to act towards uh, somebody with an addiction once they're starting treatment. I think the number one mistake that families make when someone's in early recovery is to expect too much too soon. Agree. Uh, what, what often happens is a family member will go to treatment, Maybe they go to rehab for 28 days and the family will say, oh, they're well now. Everything can go back to the way it was. And furthermore, they can now make it up to us for all the terrible things they did. And that's to completely misunderstand their situation. Uh, they're going to be in post-acute withdrawal syndrome for maybe a year or more. They're incredibly fragile even after 28 days of rehab. They're very prone to relapse. They have to spend every ounce of their energy just not using and relearning how to live without the substance that was their crutch for everything. And so they don't have the ability to go back to a full plate of life responsibilities. They don't have the ability to make it up to anyone yet for anything that they might have done. Um, and when family members expect all those things from them, they are putting a lot of additional pressure on the person, which only pushes them closer to relapse. So it's very, very important. Another reason to understand the brain chemistry is to understand that the brain heals, but it heals slowly. And when someone is in early recovery, it's very, very important to give them the time and the space to recover on their timetable and to support them in what they're doing right, rather than complaining that they aren't doing it fast enough. Right. And I, I would add to that to other common mistakes that I see are the, uh, the family member that's very burned out or really quite angry, um, they, the person enters into treatment and now that's the opportunity for the family member to say, good, 
not my problem, someone else's problem, and to totally disengage, which really is not, uh, it's not a helpful approach. Um, sometimes if you need a break, it's okay to say, you know, this has been really hard. I'm going to take a little breather, but I'm still involved. I still want to, you know, work with your treatment team or be present in some way and don't just abandon the person. I think that's, that's not a good, helpful approach. And then the flip side of that would be the uh, family member that, okay, now you're in treatment. So now I want to be, you know, sort of steering the treatment and um, basically saying all of these ways in which things need to change and trying to control the treatment in a way that's also not appropriate and won't be helpful for, for the treatment uh, outcome and also won't be helpful for the person who is engaging in that. There's sort of a sweet spot of finding support for yourself as a family member who's going through something that's very difficult and engaging um, with the treatment providers in a way that's more guided by their professional expertise and paced according to what your loved one in treatment can tolerate or is ready for and, um, and, and trying to find that balance. One concept that, that people find difficult is that because it's a family disease, if your loved one is in recovery, you also need to be in recovery. You've been through a lot. You've been through a terrible time. You need to recover and you need to pay attention to your own recovery. And that might mean educating yourself. It might mean seeking support from other people. It might mean joining a group uh, of people who have been through the same thing and seeking support and seeking healing there. Um, but often the best thing you can do for an addict in recovery is to work on your own emotional recovery. The importance of self-care as we're trying to support others is is just profoundly important. And I think as a general rule gets too little attention, but certainly when it comes to the treatment of addiction, it's critical to pay attention as the support person to taking care of yourself. Because if you get tapped out or resentful, uh, it's not gonna be the case that you'll be very helpful for very long. Um, I was going to also mention that some of the research that I'm involved in, which it focuses on increasing aftercare engagement by using the support, um, by sort of leveraging the support of a loved one, actually goes through, and it, it's sort of an interesting module, and I'll see if I can um, link to it, because we actually walk through what the aftercare plans are, what sort of the long-term treatment plans are for the person with the addiction. And then we come up with a very stepped and concrete plan for how the loved one can be supportive. And both the patient and the loved one are involved in making this plan. And as a part of the plan, they sort of pick some things that, that they're both willing to do and commit to doing them. And then we talk through obstacles. And often, as you guys were mentioning, the obstacles are, are that the loved one is pretty burned out or ha just has limited resources, um, either because you know, that's sort of, they have limited time or limited finances or, or limited energy, or because the relationship has been so um, problematic because of the addiction. And so that becomes a part of the plan. How do you sort of integrate that if you want to maintain that supportive role? What do you need as the supported, as a loved one to continue to participate in a supportive way? And maybe it's that what you need is to sort of do less, but commit to doing 
the whatever it is that you decide to do, whether it's to do a once a week phone call or you know a daily text or something like that, um, to show support, but to also honor the fact that you know you're a person too. Sounds like really great research, and um, I think having a structure for two people being able to agree on, okay, here's how we're going to approach this together um, is just critical for all kinds of illnesses, not just addiction. It's, it's something that um, you would think would get done uh, in routine practice, but it seems to be something that gets overlooked. So it's terrific that you're working on that. It's a family disease and it needs a family treatment and a family recovery. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's why this, this book is such a great resource. And, um, you know, before we end, I just wanted to ask you both, um, what, what is the most common piece of advice that you give to a loved one who's dealing with an addiction? Um, I would say, first, you're not alone. You may think you're the only person going through this that no one else can understand. That is not true. Thousands of other people are going through what you are and understand what's happening. I would say there is hope. Um, you know, my uh, my mom suffered from dementia, and one of the problems with dementia is there is no hope. People don't get better, but with addiction, there is hope, and people get better every day, no matter how terrible it seems. Um, I love that message. There That's is true. hope. That's true. I, I would say, educate yourself, um, learn as much as you can about the disease. I think our book is a great way to start. Uh, but I think anything you can do to learn about the disease is going to be helpful. I think getting support, talking to other people is very helpful and is very healing. And um, and don't give up. Yeah, don't give up is one of the most common things. And And I always also ask people, you know, tend to the basics, like, how are you doing with sleep? You know, how have you been doing with, you know, your your meals and such? How are you doing in your routines that are just very basic and try to get them to focus on self-care in that way? Um, likewise, you know, with, with the person that comes in for treatment, um, one of the most common messages that I give around these kinds of relational conflicts is, um, you know, you have to understand and try to look at it from the other side of this equation um, because, you know, your, your family member loves you. And yet, it's been impossible to live with you um, under these circumstances. And you've got to appreciate that and accept that there's going to be some time needed to repair the relationship. And over time, if you do your, your part, um, this person is likely to come around and do their part, and you'll have a good relationship again. But it's going to be work, and it's going to take time. Absolutely. It's, the, um, the rupture in trust is a oh, big, yes. big issue. Yes. Um, the sense that I can't trust this person who has the addiction um, and there's betrayal and deceit and all that kind of stuff. So, so that repairing broken trust is a long process. That's not a, okay, now I'm in early recovery and I'm doing all the things that I'm supposed to be doing. That alone doesn't repair the trust problem. The, repairing the trust takes time and it takes um, repeated experience of the person as trustworthy. And so both sides have to be patient with that. And just going back to what we said at the beginning, it's a brain disorder, it's yeah. a disease. And no matter how badly 
your family member behaves, no matter how much they hurt you, no matter how evil they seem when they're in active addiction, um, it's a disease. And it's hard to remember, but if you can remember, I'm going to love the person and hate the disease. I think that's very helpful. Yeah. I also try to teach um, family members that in the same way that if you're sick with uh, an infection, signs that you're sick will be things that aren't commonly there, like having a fever or getting a rash. And that's an external sign that you're actively sick. Um, and likewise, in addiction syndromes, it's very common that some of the active signs are things like lying behavior or even stealing. And these are signs that don't occur outside of active addiction. And so you have to think of it as part of the illness syndrome, um, you know, in, of course, in cases where it didn't, it didn't exist all the time. I think those are all such good pieces of advice. And I just want to say again that there's so much more wonderful advice in your book. There's so much information that we just didn't have time to cover. Um, there's an extensive resource section. There's a lot of very specific information about um, the nature of uh, the impact of each of the different substance use categories and, and all the different treatments that are available from detox to outpatient to 12-step. Um, and so... I really encourage listeners who are looking for more information, for more support, for more guidance to check out this book. We'll link to it on our website. Um, and if you found this episode helpful and you think other people might benefit too, please share it and also leave us a review on iTunes, which helps the podcast to reach more individuals. Can I add one last thing? One last thing is um, it's really important for people to recognize that people with substance use disorders are at much higher risk for suicide. And so if you see somebody with a substance use disorder who is despairing or talking about life not being worth living or actually harming themselves, take that very take seriously. seriously. Take it very seriously because they are at elevated risk. Thanks for making that point, Hillary. I actually have um, a suicide hotline that I often give people, and there might be many of them, but this is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, and the phone number for that is 1-800-273-8255. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you, Tom and Hillary, both for coming on Psychologists Off the Clock, and we'll link to information about each of you, um, as well as your book, for individuals who want to find out more about you and your work. Thank you guys so much for honoring me with your time. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Indeed. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com.